Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. Today, we have this subject of marriage and sex. And I think this is, this is for everyone. This is not just for the married people. For the married people, sex is a joy and it can also be tricky. Uh, for single people, sex can become a source of frustration and difficulty, sometimes bitterness, longing that you would have someone to be with. So if you are single, I think this still applies. And for those of you who would hope to be married one day, we hope it's helpful. At the very least, we're talking about sex, so it won't be boring. So we've all got that out of the way. Everyone's on tenterhooks. I will never say sex as many times in public over the next 30 minutes. Uh, again, probably. Um, so I'm just getting ready for that myself. Um, it, it's weird, right? Just saying it out loud in front of lots of people. I've even got a water bottle today, which I never normally have, just to, to buy myself time because I have to be very careful as to what I say and don't say. And we've been praying, as Hannah prayed, like for, for soft hearts. Because I, I know especially like as a married person talking about sex and saying that sex is not the be-all and end-all, it can sound a bit like a millionaire talking to someone without money saying, oh, it's all right, money's not everything while they drive in their Lamborghini back to their, their mansion. You're like, it's very well for you to say that because you're married. Um, I hope you'll give me some grace and listen with me as we get into this. Is that all right? So there are two questions today. Um, the first question that we're going to look at is why, why is sex for marriage only? That's what Christians believe, that sex is for marriage but why? And then the second question we'll look at or view we're going to look at is Paul's teaching as to sex within marriage. And Paul has a few things to say about sex within marriage. So why should it be within marriage? And then some teaching around sex within marriage. Is that all right? Let me set the scene for us. So Corinth, as we know, is, is a, a highly sexualized culture like ours today. Uh, prostitution was rife and normalized and mainstream, even in a way that it isn't today. They lived literally under the shadow of the temple to Aphrodite. Their whole city, their whole city was essentially set up for this worship to the goddess of love and sex. And for them in that, that culture... It was, it was very normal, if not expected, for a husband and a wife to be married and, sadly, for the husband then to have his own mistresses in, as an extra to the marriage. So marriage was given as like provision for, for having a family and having heirs to give on your property and your homes and your businesses to those who would be your biological heirs. And then the husband was allowed to go and have mistresses at the same time. They were a highly promiscuous society. It was normal. And so what was, seems to be happening is that there are people who were growing up in this society and assuming this is how you do life and then meeting Jesus Christ, saying yes to him, following him, being baptised into Christ and into the church, turning up at church and going on week on the week, expecting that these aspects of their life, of going to the temple, of having a mistress, would carry on because that's just 
normal, right? And so Paul in the last passage was talking about why what we do with our body matters. But what seems to have happened with those who were like being flagrantly promiscuous in the church, there had been this polarizing and opposite reaction amongst some people, which often happens, right? If, if there is an extreme thing going in culture, what happens? It pushes culture the other end, which is exactly what we're experiencing at the moment, right? Social media, politics, the left dear, the left get, the rightier the right get and it's kind of like the discourse gets and sometimes even when people become christians what can happen is that if they've been involved in certain parts of life culture behavior lifestyle sin when people become christians what happens is they say a huge no to this whole bit of lifestyle that they were a part of sometimes throwing the baby out with the bathwater. and there were some people who were saying that actually not only should sex just be for marriage, but maybe as Christians, we should not have sex at all. And so he says in this, in, in verse one of chapter seven, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So clearly the church leaders had written saying, ah, our church, help us. Here are some of the issues. And one of the issues that people were saying in contrast and opposite to those who are being so promiscuous, maybe what we should do is just say to everyone, whether they're single or married, no one should be having sex anymore if you're a Christian, because that's just like part of the old life. And so you see in your Bible in quotation marks, it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So you told me this, right? That's what some people in the church are saying. And so Paul responds in this passage, talking about marriage and sex and actually how the Bible has a very positive view of sex. Last week, we looked at a positive view of the body. This week, contrary to what some people outside of the church think, the Bible and Christianity has a very positive view of sex the whole bible starts with god like before the ten commandments before any sacrifices were asked to be made the very first thing that god says to adam and eve is what multiply that doesn't happen through holding hands just so you know there's like processes that have to happen god was essentially saying guys i've made you biologically like you are please go and have sex and so the early vision of husband and wife is them naked eating fruit having sex it's not a bad start to human history right this is where the biblical story starts unashamed like this is part of life something not to be ashamed of and in the very center of our bible we have what is called the song of songs which is love poetry um, but it's highly erotic love poetry and when you read it a few times like it'll make an Englishman blush it's really really erotic at points and you think this like should have some kind of ratings on it one commentator he says this most English translations hesitate in translating the Song of Songs the Hebrew is quite erotic and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning. This again is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, shamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. 
Rather, the two stand before each other aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. It's sex positive. The question then is why, if sex is good and created by God, why would we keep it just for marriage? Because today's society says, well, if it's, if it's good and if it's enjoyable and if it's just people having fun with people, then why not let people do whatever they want to do if no one's getting hurt? I want to give five quick-ish reasons why Christians say that sex is only for marriage. The first is this. Sex is precious. When something is precious we put fences and guardrails around it. We have the Mona Lisa, right? And it's protected. It's something that's precious and valuable. We don't put fences and perspex and alarms around flyers for two for one at Subway because they're like, whatever. It's not like, take it, use it, chuck it on the floor, chuck it in the bin, whatever. People just, it's not valuable, right? But when something is precious, we, we guard it. When something is beautiful, we guard. If you go down to Richmond Park, huge park, weeds, grass, trees, whatever, and in within Richmond Park, there are these little gardens, right? The Isabella Plantation is this beautiful curated garden with fences around it because there is beauty here in this patch. We don't have to fence all the weeds. We don't care about those so much. But this, what is beautiful, is fenced and protected. What's powerful, we protect and we put embankments around what is powerful the Thames has embankments around it because in the past it has destroyed parts of the city and so embankments have been built up because of this power and this use of the and sex is precious it's beautiful it's powerful and so God has given us these fences these guardrails these embankments which is called marriage to protect this precious beautiful powerful gift and we're living in a moment that essentially says no 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 there doesn't need to be any embankments on it we'll just use it as we want and wherever we want and what happens is that the beauty starts to dull the preciousness gets devalued and its power starts to wreak havoc in lots of people's lives even when our culture tells us that hookup culture is just a thing move on with your life people know something has happened in my soul we're not allowed to admit it but something has happened inside and so god puts these protective embankments around sex so that it might be cultivated for what it is precious beautiful and powerful the second thing is this sex unites two people and that unity isn't to be broken back in genesis chapter 2 let me just read this God makes Adam and then he realises that it's not good for man, Adam, to be alone. And that's not that, you know, in the context, this is God telling people to, um, telling us to multiply. And he realises that Adam alone is not going to work. It takes two to tango. And so we're told he creates Eve. And this is what we're told. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, part of his side, and closed up its place with flesh. 
and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So there was one, and then God creates two opposites, if you will. And then the Lord presents Adam with Eve, and this is what Adam says. This at last is bone of my bones. This is of me and flesh of my flesh. She is of me and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. John Stott, who was a, a vicar who's now passed away at All Souls, he said the coming together of a husband and wife is a union, but it's also more than a union. It's actually a reunion because we were once one and God created male and female. And the coming together of a husband and wife is the reunion of opposites. Husband and wife, male and female, woman and man, coming together to be united as one flesh. And this one flesh unity is not a simple bodily thing. As Charles mentioned, we are body and soul unities. And so when this talks about coming together and becoming one, it is a symbolic act as a husband and wife come together, it is a symbolic act physically telling each other with their bodies that we are united, not just in physical form, but in spiritual, in emotional, in relational, in financial, in everything that we are, we are united as one. And sex is the symbol of that unity. Which is why in marriage you can't just separate the sex from the rest of the uni unity of the marriage. If I can be, can I get careful and pastoral? <laughs> People are saying, could you move on? Is that all right? <laughs> for, for married people, can't expect to mistreat each other or neglect one another in other parts of the marriage and then expect the sex life to be on fire because the sex life is a symbol and a consummation of the unity of two people in total which is why the total of the person needs to be looked after and cared for the emotions and the person and gifts and calling and life and everyday kindness all of this becomes the total and sex simply sits at the heart of this union where two people have become one and that one is not to be broken. So sex is for marriage because it's two people becoming one. C.S. Lewis, he said this about what we like to do in our culture. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one union that is sexual from all other kinds of union which are meant to go along with it and to make up the total union. The Christian attitude doesn't mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure. It means that you mustn't isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try and get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things 
and spitting them out again. Sex is the symbol of a complete union of two people. The third thing is this, sex displays the faithfulness of God. Potentially one of the most important sentences ever written about marriage was written by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31 where he says this. He says, oh sorry, not in Timothy, going too far. Ephesians 5:31. He says therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, quoting Genesis. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So for Christians, the amazing thing is that when a husband and wife come together, it is for societal blessing. It is for family. It is for one another. But it is far more than that. Marriage is to refer us, to take us, to lead us to a bigger covenantal relationship between God in Christ Jesus with his church. And that we are to reflect the faithfulness and the loyalty of Jesus to us in our marriage. And when a husband and a wife make vows to one another to forsake all other and be faithful to you, they are declaring that they are going to be loyal to this person, the very centre of their being, that their longings and their desires will be pointed towards this person. And as one husband and one wife do this to one another they begin to experience the loyalty and the faithfulness of God to us sure marriage is an imperfect and sinful expression of that but we begin to touch the faithfulness of God as we are faithful with our desires to one another the common thread today is that sex is a private thing so it doesn't really matter But sex, while it is private and it is hidden, and rightly so, actually has public implications. One author said this. He says, by our faithfulness to one another within a community that requires finally loyalty to God, we experience and witness to the first fruits of the new creation. Our commitment to exclusive relations witnesses to God's pledge to his people and the church. That through his exclusive commitment to them, people will be brought into his kingdom. Where there is sexual faithfulness within a marriage, it is the bedrock of a community where loyalty is celebrated. Where there is private sexual promiscuity, it will always inevitably lead to spiritual promiscuity. These two things, private and public, we can never actually separate them. What happens in private overflows eventually and leads to ripples in communities, churches and society. So God gives us sex within marriage to display faithfulness. Fourthly, sex touches the joy of God. We're told in Psalm 19 that the heavens display the glory of God. We're told that the earth is displaying the divine nature and that everything that we are about touches the nature of whom God is and that includes our sex lives and it tells us something about God Paul says later in 1 Corinthians do everything whether you eat or drink whatever you do do all to the glory of God including marital sex 
And let me say this carefully. God made us sexual beings, right? He gave women what they have. They give men what they have. And when a husband and a wife come together in intimacy, God gives that joy and that pleasure so that there might be a touching of the divine emotions towards us. There is infinite joy, we're told, in the heavens. The Father pouring out love into the Son. The Son into the Father. The Spirit into the Son. The Spirit into the Father. And vice versa. This infinite overflow of explosive joy in God. And God gives us within loyal, faithful relationships as Father, Son and Holy Spirit are with one another. The joy of sex to experience just a faint glimmer of the joy of God. Fifthly and finally for this point, sex is for procreation. And you, like, I was like, shocked myself because this was like late in the day in preparing. I was like, oh yes, sex is also for actually making babies. Like that's, that's how soaked in our culture I am today because I'm just thinking about all these other things. But the primary reason that the Bible gives us is that a husband and a wife may co-create with God and see a human being formed. I mean, it's one of the most unbelievable, sacred things that a husband and a wife can come together and that through their reproductive cells, they can, in that moment, co-create a soul with an eternal destiny. It's mad, right? Like that God in that moment is involved so that David could say in Psalm 139, you knit me together in my mother's womb. That there is husband and wife and God co-creating a life that will live forever. And God gives a father and a mother, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife to parent and to raise a child. So that in our traditional Western services anyway, very often at the beginning of a service, this is read, the gift of marriage brings husband and wife together in the delight and tenderness of sexual union and joyful commitment to the end of their lives. It is given as a foundation of family life in which children are born and nurtured and in which each member of the family in good times and in bad may find strength, companionship and comfort and grow to maturity in love husband reflects something of the image of god the wife reflects something of the image of god and together they are called to raise fatherly care and motherly care children within family units what does that mean for those who are single parents it means that we as a church need to stand with those and support and pray for and be mothers where there may not be a mother and be fathers where there may not be a father to stand with those people who maybe through no fault of their own, are raising children by themselves. But God gives fathers and mothers to raise children. Amen? Amen. So, you may still not agree with me. Come talk to me, come talk to Charles. If it's a particularly tough question, go to Charles. (laughs) But we as a church and Christianity since its birth has believed that our faithfulness to God is reflected in our faithfulness to one another in marriage through our sexual lives. So what does Paul say to those who are married within this embankment? He says, 
five things and I am going to be quick-ish with these. I think I was quick-ish with the first five. I think everyone's so quiet, uh, we're getting through it quite quickly. So Paul actually has some things to say to married couples, believing that sex is good and that it should be within marriage, celebrated within marriage, he says a few things. And I'm going to take a big swig of water, then we're going to keep going. You are very quiet today, I have to say. (laughs) The first thing is this. And these are all interrelated as they are. The first thing is this, that sex within marriage, Paul seems to imply, is to be regular. He says in verse three, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife, the, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. And there can be many ways in which husbands and wives can do this consciously or subconsciously. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again the first thought i had when i was preparing this was how often is paul expecting a married couple to be having sex that they have to agree to stop for a moment so that they can go off and pray i'm like he has a radical i'm like i mean that was literally my first thought like I mean, it's like, get off me for one moment so I can talk to the Lord. (laughs) The implication is that there is a regularity to sex, right? And I've often, I mean, I've heard overconfident preachers in the past, like prescribe. And I think it's been so damaging for married people to hear that there is a number. I mean, if you're single and you watch movies, you expect like something that may not actually be reality but there is no actual number and I I think it hurts a lot of people and even if you're married you might have heard someone say very dogmatically if you're not having sex this many times a week or this many times a month then you know whatever And, and what can then happen is you can think well if we're not having sex that many times does that mean there's something fundamentally wrong in our marriage or we're not compatible or whatever it might be really damaging condemnation on like the regularity will change with seasons and health and life and babies and all sorts of stuff but the principle is regular yeah so if you're a married couple um talk about it every now and again okay (laughs) i realize i'm i'm like walking this line between this being quite fun stroke funny and also being quite painful and real and raw and like we just got to be like I think just relaxed about both of those things and I'm aware that for some of married people you're even tense right now because there's bits of pain in this Um, I would just commend husbands to be kind with your wives and wives to be kind with your husbands and if you do struggle with regularity like you are not alone it's a kind of secret thing that i mean maybe appropriately we don't talk about because these are private matters but 
statistics would say that far more married people struggle in this area than you could possibly imagine. And it can be some of the most painful things. Very often we come as single people expecting what Hollywood kind of presents to us. And you realise that that is a fantasy life. And there is a real two united people with sinful, broken pasts, normal everyday lives, jobs, tiredness, expectations. It can cause some pain, right? So let me implore you, if you're married, to be very kind and patient with one another, okay? And I, I would encourage you to talk to like an older person, older husband, older wife in the church, just someone to say, look, if you, if you think you need help, there are people in this church who will talk to you privately and just help you. And they'll probably say, hey, don't worry. Uh, we go through exactly the same stuff. <laughs> and sometimes just saying these things out loud, you realise it takes all the, the weight and the pressure and the kind of lies that can creep in that something's fatally wrong with your marriage and you're like you realize what if that but i thought those people like they had it all sorted and they're like the the christian golden couple and like that they're like that and it's like it's actually so normal okay i don't know why my voice went up so high i was like (laughs) (laughs) it's so normal okay secondly sexual temptation does not go away with marriage if you're single hoping to get married so that you won't experience sexual temptation anymore i'm sorry you will be disappointed paul is very real in this passage he says in verse 2 because of the temptation to sexual immorality each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband and what he's not saying commentators say is not saying everyone should just quickly pair up and get married Well, he's saying that if a husband and a wife should have one another, that they should come together in intimacy. Because within marriage, there is a possibility for temptation. It particularly seems to be in this, verse 5, in the depriving of one another of sexual relationships. So he says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So if you're single and you're feeling like I really struggle with self-control, I would love to be married so that that issue is over and I can deal with other things. It doesn't change. There is still sexual temptation that husbands and wives need to deal with and need to walk in holiness with for one another and for the Lord. So husbands and wives need to keep guardrails up, whatever they might be, so that they can walk in quick repentance and holiness and love towards one another sexual temptation doesn't go away thirdly this might seem obvious but i just want to say it sex is for both the husband and the wife because it's interesting in corinth the view was as i've said that a husband and a wife could be married and that was fine but the husband then was allowed to have his own mistresses that basically like sex was viewed as mainly for the man And this demeaning view of women that they were there to provide motherly care for the children and to look after the household for the heirs of their inheritance. And yet Paul does this radical thing that some people think no one had ever said up to this point. Verse three, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. So the wife has rights in this relationship. 
not just the husband, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. If we were to read that alone, we'd think alarm bells. Like that's a problem, right? And yet Paul says something radical that no one up to this point had probably said. And he says the other to the wife. And he says, um, verse four, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So there is equality in the sexual life of a husband and a wife. And that a husband is not to domineer but to listen and to care and to nurture. One commentator said this, interestingly, about the Song of Songs, that's this erotic love poem. He says, the role of the woman throughout the Song of Songs is truly astounding, especially in the light of its ancient origins. It is the woman and not the man who is the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up the song. She is the one who seeks, pursues, initiates, and boldly exclaims her physical attraction. Sex within marriage is for the husband and the wife. Fourthly, sex is for pleasure. This is implied here in verse four, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So there is a sense in which the husband is allowed to talk about what he enjoys and vice versa. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. So the wife has rights to things that she likes and the husband writes things that he likes. And together, as there is a coming together, there is a listening and a talking, an implication that this is to be a joyous union. There is to be some chatting, laughter, fun, play, enjoyment, pleasure in marital sex. Amen? A few amens to that one. We are coming to an end, gang, don't worry. If you're new to Trinity Church London, welcome. Uh, we would love you to come again. Um, we do want to talk about this stuff, right? We do want to be real and we want to just like learn how the Lordship of Jesus works himself out in every aspect of life. And this is one of the most real, sometimes most painful um, things that we deal with, but we've got to do with it. This is where we come to a close. Sex is not about getting, but about giving. This is Paul's real point here. He says, wives, your body, when you get married, is now not your own. It actually belongs to your husband. And vice versa, hear me really carefully here. Husbands, your body is not your own either. It belongs to your wife. So the husband can't walk into a marriage expecting and demanding and I want this and that and I, I want, I want, I want. This is not a moment for the husband or the wife to get. What we're told here in this passage is that the husband is now given over to serve the wife and the wife is now given over to serve the husband. A lot of bitterness and anger can creep into a marriage because one side or the other, or sometimes both, have expectations and desires and demands and wants. And I thought I would get more or whatever it might be, or I'd be different or whatever it might be. And suddenly resentment can build up because I was, what, what am I getting from this? 
which is just a human caricature, right? We are selfish. We're selfish outside of marriage and we bring that selfishness, sadly, into marriage. In fact, a lot of times, marriage can just really point out all the areas that we really are sinful. Any married people? Any married people, were you holier before you got married? Anyone, yeah? Any people like pretty close to sinlessly selfless, right? And then you met, you met the, the, one, the one person you love more than anyone on the face of the earth. And you realize, oh my goodness, I thought I was doing quite well in my sanctification process here. And I am way behind on where I thought I was. Marriage has this ability to just put your sin in your face and your selfishness and all these underlying things you didn't realize were there, expectations and demands, etc. But Paul says, no, your body is not your own. So husbands, if you're, you, you just listen to your wife. And vice versa, wives, listen to your husbands. And there is this, I think the union of marriage is, is something that is legally true, but you grow into it. And it's a process of growing into a union together. You see those like older couples walking down the street sometimes and you think, you're like, they just look so, they're like the same, right? Because they're like, they've just picked each other up and they've carried each other and they've united over decades and decades and they've steeped in one another's love so much so that they just kind of, they are, they are one, right? You've met those kind of older couples because a union takes time and so if you are a young married person like just please give each other space and don't freak out if it's not exactly how you imagined in those early years and there might be seasons if you're a middle-aged married person and there are seasons that you go through I would just encourage you don't freak out don't Put the press the red button and defcon three and things that you know like just give each other some grace and just learn to slowly grow in union with one another amen this is where the gospel makes sex better i deliberately wrote that sentence down the gospel makes sex better because we don't worship a god who demands of us we worship a God who actually conversely decided to come down from heaven knowing that we sinned against him and comes and serves us. Jesus says, I'm coming not to be served, but to serve. The very God at the centre of our faith, he is a serving God. So where do we find God in the Gospels? We find him at our feet, washing our feet, on his knees, helping us, serving us. We find him walking towards the cross, dying for our sins so that he can serve us. We find him breathless, looking to the Father, thinking of us, wanting to serve us, even in a full and complete sacrifice on the cross. And this gospel, when we say yes to Christ, we have someone who serves us. And so when we take this Jesus into our heart and we say, I'm going to follow you as a sacrificing, serving God. It means that when we turn to our husbands or our wives in our sexual lives, we say, I am going to serve you just as Christ has served me. I will put aside my desires so that I can serve you. And if the husband can say that to the wife and if the wife can say that to the husband, magic will happen.